This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news as well as insight analysis on all the topics that you're debating in football. I'm Ian McGarry, and as always, with me is Duncan Castles. And of course, we live up to our reputation of news before news, because Duncan has some uh, very interesting information regarding the defensive crisis at Manchester City, and indeed how Pep Guardiola may look to solve that in the January window. Duncan, tell us what you know. Yeah, um, our, our regular listeners will remember that we gave them the heads up on Jean Cancelo and Rodri uh, signing for Manchester City last summer. What I can tell you is that um, the first uh, choice top target for a new centre-back at Manchester City is Ruben Gias, um, the Portugal international defender at Benfica. Uh, 22 years old, he has been a, a central part of Benfica's defence for the last two seasons, very highly regarded by the club. In fact, uh, a player, I'm told by one Benfica source, that they would intend to build around long term and like to keep there as long as possible. However, um, we know that Benfica are fundamentally a selling club and that they will um, allow players to go when the right prices are achieved for them. Um, I can tell you that Manchester City tried to sign Gias last summer um, and there was a period in which it looked like that deal could well go through. Um, the, the problem, which is something we mentioned on the podcast previously, was that City, because of their um, financial fair play issues and um, their attempt to kind of limit their spending, uh, last summer to a reasonable level, albeit a level that's as high as any other uh, Premier League competitor. Um, they decided that they couldn't pay the full 66 million euro release clause of uh, GS's contract at Benfica without raising cash uh, by selling a centre-back themselves first. Um, they tried to sell uh, Nicola Otamendi as a mentioned on this podcast previously. Um, they had a buyer in place in AS Monaco. However, Monaco were only prepared to pay 10 or 15 million euros for Otamendi, who would have uh, come with a very lucrative contract that he has at City, in which Monaco would have had to at least match to sign him. Um, City were asking for 30 million euros for Otamendi, a price that Monaco felt uh, was impossible and therefore that side of the deal fell through. Decision was then made um, to concentrate on Cancelo and Rodri as priorities. We've seen Pep Guardiola talk about that. He said publicly that he wanted to sign a centre-back in the in the summer, um, felt it was important because Vincent Company had decided not to extend at City and take up the, the player manager's job at Anderlecht that he was offered. Um, in the background, uh, Guardiola had lost faith with John Stones, partly for lifestyle reasons, um, and you can see that in the way he used Stones last season. Um, however, uh, there wasn't enough cash to do the deals um, that City wanted to do, and Guardiola was left without, and the priorities were, were left as right-back and um, the new holding midfielder who'd been the absolute um, key signing for Guardiola for some time. Since then, of course, uh, City have lost the one defender that 
Guardiola, central defender that Guardiola has absolute faith in, in Emeric Laporte, to um, an injury that will keep him out for the majority of the season. And uh, I think even if he does come back to fitness during the season, there'll be a question mark of whether he can get back to top uh, levels of performance because generally it takes takes some time for um, uh, footballers to recover from serious knee injuries and get back to uh, their previous levels of performance, even though you can get them on the pitch again. Um, Otamendi, as we said, uh, wanted to leave and City were prepared to cash in on him, which shows you his status. So we have this situation where um, Guardiola is coming up with solutions, uh, one that uh, worked in terms of the clean sheet that they got at the weekend against Watford was to use Fernandinho um, as one of those centre-backs. I think we'll see more of that going forward. Will they buy in January, I think, is the question. That's um, not clear uh, that they will make a move. Guardiola asked about it um, following the injuries to Laporte, suggested that they wouldn't, but didn't completely rule out the option of trying to buy in January. I think if they um, they go for Ruben Gias, who is top of their list, that will be a hard deal to do in January because Benfica will be reluctant to let the player leave, particularly if they are still in the Champions League at that stage. More likely and more uh, viable would be to um, put a deal in place for the summer when they have time to um, to get a, a successor into that role and reinvest the, um, the some of the proceeds of the transfer into a, a new defender. But Looking across the market for centre-backs, there aren't many um, top-level talents available at um, what would be a reasonable price. I mean, we saw the, the cost involved in signing Harry Maguire by Manchester United, a record fee for a defender, and, um, and very questionable uh, of, as to whether a player like Maguire would actually improve, significantly improve um, Manchester City's defence, given the the range of errors he's displayed in just his first few starts for Manchester United. And not a great deal of options um, elsewhere in the market at an attainable price. 66 million euros is an interesting figure because it's basically the level of signing Manchester City have been happy to do. A lot of their um, more significant buys, most of their the recent expensive buys have been around that 60 million, 70, 75 million euro mark, so it's within their price range. And um, you could argue represents um, reasonable value uh, in the current market for centre banks. Well, with under, just under 12 weeks, Duncan, until the January window opens, I suspect a lot of what Manchester City decide regarding recruiting a new centre back will be influenced, obviously, by results in that period. Uh, clearly, Stones is uh, will come back within five or six weeks. But as you said, I'm out report is expected to be out until February at the earliest. And even then, coming back will be difficult in terms of, um, he'll effectively have to do a, almost like a mini pre-season uh, in order to get his match fitness levels back. So it is a real... Um, point of question for City with regards to obviously defending all three domestic titles as well as um, uh, competing for the Champions League. I just wonder, um, as you said, the 60 million euro mark has been kind of where City have set the bar and it seems um, odd that a club with what we believe to be effectively infinite resources have been left in a situation where they had three centre-backs, Otamendi, Stones, Laporte. They've lost two of those and there's no one else to come in. Um, is it a case that with the FFP judgment hanging over them that they've been not flashy, trying to almost go under the radar in their spending in order to hopefully convince those at UEFA who would have them hung by the uh, Euro petard uh, that they're not... Um, uh, if you like showing or um, showing off the money they have to spend, and instead they're being effectively well, in their context anyway uh, frugal or um, at least judicious in their spending. Absolutely, and if you take away financial fair play, if you take that rule away, there is no question that Abu Dhabi entering this season 
would have responded to Pep Guardiola's request for a new starting centre-back because he'd lost company um, against the expectation. City had been working to to get him to sign a, a new contract after he'd had such a strong end to the season and established himself as the preferred partner alongside Laporte. They would have responded by buying him a centre-back and, and probably, probably they would have gone for someone like Matthias de Ligt who Ajax, for a point during last season, were expecting um, Manchester City to uh, to buy um, because of the extensive work they'd been doing, scouting the player and researching the player and conversations they'd had with Ajax over his um, purchase. That decision was decided not to go down that line, uh, partly because Mino Raiola was the agent and um, Mino Raiola's relationship with Guardiola is brilliant but principally because of the, the costs involved in terms of meeting Ajax's uh, expectations on transfer fee and meeting Raiola's expectations on salary and um, commission. So this limitation on their spend is because of FFP and they're now conscious that everyone is watching them. Um, they've been, there is documentary, they've, they've broken the rules previously they were punished for them and there's documentary evidence that they've, uh, they've broken the rules subsequently. Uh, so other European clubs want to see their spending reined in and they've done that in a voluntary sense uh, and the evidence is in this last summer's transfer window and that you, know, you have Guardiola on record saying he wanted a centre-back and uh, the club wasn't able to do it for financial reasons. You also have um, Khaldun Al-Mubarak, senior Abu Dhabi politician and chairman of the club, giving his end-of-season address and emphasising the fact that although they had spent money, they didn't possess any of the um, the international um, transfer records. So I think they are conscious of avoiding um, making that uh, record deal because it allows them to uh, push this PR line that although they have spent um it's other clubs who are uh, spending the highest prices on the market. Obviously, that's you know it's easy to to uh, to see that it's a PR line when you do the examination of the total cost of the squad. You know the figures that Sports CIES put out recently, showing that um, Manchester City are the first club in history to have a, a squad that cost over a billion euros in transfer fee commitments to put together, that they've spent more in the last decade by a significant margin than any other club. Um, they have inflated the market, as is the accusation from the likes of Javier Tebas. They've just done it by, um, as we pointed out, spending the equivalent of uh, 18 Cristiano Ronaldo transfers to create their squad, um, as opposed to... Um, <sighs> six or seven very, very expensive eye-catching eye record transfers like a Paul Pogba, um, which which have happened to some other clubs, although not um, one club doing all of those um, record transfers. Well, Manchester United themselves, who sold, of course, Cristiano Ronaldo uh, in, to Real Madrid for £80 million, may well have spent uh, the equivalent of around 14 or 15 Cristiano Ronaldo's in that time uh, in order to try and keep up with Manchester City, but still managed to lose 2-0 to West Ham United last weekend. Uh, Duncan, I'm just going to read you some of the most choice quotes from uh, the very, very, I think, uh, relevant and knowledgeable pundits uh, who were reporting on that game. Roy Keane said he was shocked and saddened by how poor United were. He said that they're just not good enough and we're a long way back for this United team. Also, it's scary how far they have fallen. Jose Mourinho chimed in, and this was just one quote, but he said they were the team now are worse than when he was sacked, despite having spent £150 million in the summer market. And Graham Souness was very um, succinct in his criticism by simply saying the worst group of Man United players that they have had since the start of the Premier League. Um, damning criticism, Duncan, and I think we have to start with the the most relevant question, and that is, is Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's job now under serious threat? Look, I think it is. Um, I think you can't you can't go on with the sequence of results that Solskjaer has had, um, despite 
you know, the massive support he has from uh, former uh, teammates of his in prominent positions in the football media who re- refuse to um, criticise, as far as I can see, anything. He has to done be fair, ma- Duncan, uh, Gary Neville did say in Cocoms that £900 million spent um, in the time that City have been spending and managed to have no strikers. How can you explain that? Now, that's not a dig at, obviously, Solskjaer, but Solskjaer, if he's got any say in recruitment, surely would have, should and would have bought a striker in the summer to replace Romelu Lukaku. Yeah, and that's where someone like Gary Neville should be mentioning Solskjaer in that comment. Um, he, you know, Solskjaer is the manager of the squad. He takes responsibility, ultimately, for the performance of the team. He will and has been consulted on the structure of that squad. If he decides to go into a season with um, two experienced strikers, uh, neither of whom consistently have played as number nines for um, their entire careers, actually, um, one of whom, Anthony Martial, we know has been injury-prone and um, and is, is known as a moody individual whose, whose form goes up and down, plus a teenage um, striker with a lot of talent in Mason Greenwood, but um, someone who hadn't started um, for Manchester United in the Premier League before this season, then that decision has to be on him. Um, you know, he has played a role in that decision. There, and if if it's, it's, he goes six games into a season with his fitness regime, which um, you know, he how many times did we hear Solskjaer? as the results declined at the end of last season, saying it would be different with a pre-season. My team will be fitter, my team will be more robust, I'll be able to play the kind of football I want to play once I've had a pre-season in them. He gets that pre-season in them. A lot of work is, is, is done in the media saying how they've been doing high-intensity work and how much harder they've been um, training than they had in previous seasons um, during uh, the preseason to to sell that story. We're six games in, and um, he is an, an away match in the Premier League with Jesse Lingard as his centre forward, because both Martial and Rashford have gone down with muscular injuries um, six games into the season. I don't. I can't think of another football club that I've covered that would get six games into a season and have no fit centre forwards. Um, but that's the position that Solskjaer has managed to get himself in by taking the decision to sell uh, Romelu Lukaku and allowing him to go without being replaced. And depending on uh, Rashford, Martial and Greenwood as his strike force and putting in place that fitness regime, that pre-season that he deemed to be so important. And these aren't the only muscular injuries that the, the team has suffered so far. Shaw is out as well. Um, you, we have a pattern of muscular injuries last season uh, going into uh, the, one of their Champions League ties. They lost four players in, in the space of a week, um, including uh, the injuries that occurred during the game. There, you know, the question should be asked about the way he is training the team, uh, whether that is his decision or whether he is um, deferring it to staff um, to try and get... Uh, the response he wanted. But, you know, that has nothing, um, the, the, the increase in muscular injuries has nothing to do with the transfer market in the sense that that's something entirely within the manager's remit to control. And it, it, the evidence is that it's not working for him. Then you couple that with the decisions they made in the transfer market, which is let two senior forwards go and don't replace, let two um, important midfielders leave, and don't replace, uh, and you end up with what is, I mean, you say, Roy Keane said he was shocked and surprised. I don't I don't see any shock or surprise in what Manchester United have done at the start of the season. He said saddened, to be fair, Duncan. He said shocked and saddened, not surprised. Okay. Shock, well, I, I don't but see But shock, shock, yeah, shock, yeah, it does some, this it, is, implies surprise, yeah. This is, this is predictable. I, um, Manchester United going into the start of the season, six games, two wins, two draws, two defeats. You know, that's pretty much what you'd expect them to be given the way they have been under Solskjaer. 
um, uh, given the, the recruitment that was done in the summer, given that they have a manager who, um, in a nine-year career, his greatest achievement is winning the Norwegian League. Um, someone who his previous Premier League job got Cardiff City relegated. His, his run at present is two wins in the last 11 Premier League games, um, a club record seven Premier League games without an away win. Their last away clean sheet was in February. They've only scored more than one goal once in the last 13 matches. I think in the last, I think it's the last 11 games, their average is less than a goal a game. You know, six six games, two wins, two defeats. That's actually slightly above his, um, you know, what he's been performing like since March. So there's, for me, no shock. This this is predictable. Um, and then, I think the question now is how long will the Glazers um, be patient with it? Um, how long does it take them to realise that the appointment was a mistake? And um, and they need to upgrade the manager. Well, well-run football departments, and I, the reason I'm saying that, Duncan, as you well know, is a difference from a well-run football club because we know that Manchester United make profits, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, which um, fund the Glazers' dividends on an annual basis. But a well-run football department <clears throat> won't look to sack a manager unless they have at least a preferred candidate in mind to bring in and that they make contact with that candidate and ensure that that person is willing to come and, if you like, clean up the mess left by the previous incumbent. Um, of the current managers available who would fit Manchester United's uh, photo fit of uh, who they would see as being someone who could improve on Solskjaer and um, who could possibly um, rescue was already a situation which sees them 10 points behind league leaders Liverpool. <clears throat> Max Allegri stands out as the obvious one. Um, I know for a fact Allegri last season um, began to learn English and Spanish, to be fair, uh, in February um, uh, in order that he would be prepared for a move to either England or Spain. Uh, his preference is certainly to go to Spain. However, obviously Zidane then took on the job at Real Madrid, which was a preferred option in March, um, therefore precluding that as an option for him. Now, will not Allegri, who is a very considered, diplomatic and also um, intelligent both coach and human being, would look at Manchester United as something which he could rescue? I'm not sure, Duncan. But, as I said, if it gets to this critical point where Manchester United have yet again to change the manager, then Allegri, I think, would be the obvious primary candidate. Look, I think, um, I think there's a very good argument that of the prominent jobs in football, Manchester United is the hardest manager's job there is at present. Um, you have a dysfunctional club. Um, the squad isn't good enough. It's very imbalanced now, particularly after the, the summer spending. Yes, they put a lot of money into the defence. Aramban Basaka, I think, is a good signing or will, will prove himself to be that long term. They clearly overspent on Harry Maguire, who, as I say, has been making errors again at the weekend, um, failing to be aware of a mistake by one of his colleagues and, and uh, Ashley Young allowing Yarmolenko to run off the back of him um, and, and doing nothing, although he was stood in the middle with no player on him, no player near him, uh, not noticing Yarmolenko had come inside until Yarmolenko was almost on top of him, had the ball, and then Maguire backs off and allows him the opportunity to shoot. So they've, they've spent there. I think he is an improvement on the centre-backs they had, but clearly not worth the £85 million they spent for him and the money could have been spent better. But the, the squad's not fit for purpose. There's no director of football, despite the promises from Ed Woodward that he would be in place for the summer. Ed Woodward remains in charge of transfers and contracts and keeps making mistakes on them, clearly out of his depth as a chief executive of a football club from the football side. Commercial side, brilliant. No questions about it. Um, very successful in increasing the revenue of the club uh, in for you know the past 10 years. But football side, 
I, I struggle to I challenge anyone to point out a series of successes that Woodward has had as a chief executive football club. So you're looking at working in that scenario with owners who are primarily interested in profit, um, not bothered particularly about whether the team wins or not, not bothered particularly about even watching the team. How often do we see the Glazers attend Manchester United matches? Huge weight of expectation, um, as there always is with big clubs, and competing against um, the club with the richest resources in world football, nation-state-owned club, Manchester City, and a, a, a Liverpool in the best shape they've been for decades um, with you know, a powerful squad and good financial resources of their own um, should they need them uh, to to continue succeeding in um, European domestic football. So it's, it's a tough, tough ask. And I think you're right. Um, someone like Max Allegri would look very carefully at that position um, before deciding to take it. That's not to say he wouldn't be interested in taking it, but I know that Allegri has been considering leaving Juventus for several seasons um, before he actually departed this summer. He had offers um, from English clubs and he turned those offers down because he felt uh, the position wasn't attractive enough to be worth leaving Juventus for and taking a risk um, moving to England for the first time and not succeeding. And, and that's, you know, any manager looking at Manchester United now with um, a degree of rationality is going to say, I'm taking a risk with my career um, because this is such a hard uh, job to solve. So that is going to be a, a factor. Um, I, it wouldn't... I'd be very surprised if the, if the next manager is anything other than an established name and someone with a strong uh, track record in football because the, the, the history of Woodward and this board is to um, respond to criticism of the club and failures on the field by switching from what they had to, um, to its opposite in the next appointment. Um, so the opposite of Solskjaer is going to be a an experienced figure with a good track record. I must admit, having just listened to you, Duncan, um, with regards to your analysis on who the successor might be, do we think that maybe supersized Sam should be firing up the Granada and heading over to Carrington? <laughs> uh, Sam, I think Sam would love that, and I'm sure I'm sure you'd love that, Ian. Um, I'm not, not sure. I'm not sure even Ed. You said you said a big name manager. I mean, he's a big manager. <laughs> he is a big manager. Um, I'm not sure even Ed could sell that one to the Manchester United supporters at present. Well, he, he sold them a pup already, so maybe he can sell them a big dog. Who knows? From Manchester United to Manchester City, Duncan, um, quite the turnaround from uh, the weekend previously when they lost uh, to Norwich City. Uh, I'm not saying that it was a seismic kind of uh, movement in the football world, but clearly people were a bit shocked, like Roy Keane said, uh, in the way that they lost to the newly promoted side. They responded by going out and thrashing Watford, albeit under new manager Kiki Sanchez-Flores, 8-0, uh, breaking all kinds of records. Uh, quickest Premier League goal this season, um, quickest five goals in the Premier League era on 19 minutes, etc., etc. Um, it's difficult to criticise them and say that, well, you know, it was only Watford and everything else because they did uh, respond to what happened previously. And we should probably factor in the um, the good win in the Champions League at Shakhtar uh, as well uh, the previous midweek. But, do you think that maybe the response to, uh, and I mean by this generally in the media, the 8-0 win was overboard given that they played Norwich one week and Watford the next? Look, it's, it's definitely a great response to the defeat at Norwich. You know, very solid um, Champions League win against difficult 
opponents um, who have given Manchester City problems in, in Europe in the past and then an absolutely comprehensive um, win over Watford that was decided inside, you know, 10 minutes effectively we knew that game we knew that game was over and we knew it was going to be a high score because that's the way Manchester City are Manchester City are a phenomenally good team and they have a history of when they um, put opponents to the sword early in the game scoring a lot of goals against them they're, I mean their statistics on um, the games that have had in the Premier League with over five goals scored are miles ahead of um, any other club and that's a testament to the way they play. Um, but I think there is an element in which you can get carried away with that because what are we talking about? We're talking about a Premier League season where it is Liverpool against Manchester City, where the two clubs have put up um, record totals in terms of the two highest finishes in the Premier League last season um, and were uh, you know, only separated in the final week of the season, the final day of the season. Both teams know and the expectation is it's going to be tight again this year and they have to win as often as possible to ensure um, that they win the title and they're setting themselves targets above their, their points totals from last season to do that. So in that context, a 6-0, an 8-0 win Lots of 6-0 wins are only going to be relevant to Manchester City if it comes down to goal difference. And in that context, if you go to Norwich City and you play Watford and you take three points from those two games instead of six, it's a bad result. And it's a result that is, puts pressure on them to um, take uh, at least one win. And as things stand, they would need to take two wins from the head-to-head -head games against Liverpool. Um, I think you can see from the, the way Jurgen Klopp's talking about his team not being as entertaining, but getting it done. The, the emphasis at the Liverpool side, they know they're not going to outscore Manchester City, but they know they have solutions to win games and they, they have been coming through difficult, a series of difficult early season games with results. Um, again, against Chelsea at the weekend, that's a, a game that you could easily have seen Liverpool dropping two points in. Um, yet, uh, they come away with a very important win um, from a, a tough fixture and retain a five-point lead at the top of the division. And that's, I think that that's, if you ask, I think, Pep Guardiola what, what he would rather have, um, two 1-0 wins against Norwich City and Watford, or a 3-2 defeat and an 8-0 win the next week, I'm pretty sure he'd answer you the former. And, and, and the reason is, it's the points that matter at the end of the season. And as I say, City are capable of bowling teams over. We, we, we can't afford to get carried away with that in the context of this title race. They are going to bowl teams over. They have been doing it for years. The question, question of whether they win the title race is, do they get more points than Liverpool? Very much the case, Duncan, and Liverpool are looking fairly irresistible at the moment, given um, Chelsea were a little bit unlucky in certain stages of that game, but Liverpool were pragmatic um, in the way that they played uh, and in the way it secured that win. Um, and again, a very, very important win and a way at Stamford Bridge as well. So I think, you know, we're looking now, we said it last week and we some people were taking issue with us by saying, is it? Liverpool's league to lose? Well, I think that very uh, question has much more significance after this weekend's games than it had beforehand. Um, I would just like to mention, um, and I know that you're not the biggest fan of the manager, Duncan, but I thought Leicester City were um, exceptional at the weekend, overcoming uh, VAR decisions, as obviously Tottenham were asked to as well, to come back from one goal, in, uh, one goal down against uh, Spurs and then indeed win 2-1. Um, had a chat with Brendan Rodgers uh, after that game uh, and in which uh, we talked about the balance of his team as well as that mentality that they seem to have um, instilled. Now, even though they, they felt the injustice of VAR, but they also um, went on to um, take the, uh, the lead and, and indeed defend the lead against Spurs. I felt 
as well. As I said, the balance of his team is, is, is very, very good now with Madison um, playing a huge role in that. The VAR thing's not going to go away, is it, Duncan? And Leicester City Tottenham was a very, very good example of, again, how the measure of accuracy or not um, invites criticism of the technology. Yeah, I think um, I think it's fascinating that we're we're only six weeks into the season and we have this repeated demonstration that we're going to have an issue with marginal offside calls. You know, we had the Raheem Sterling decisions in the first week, and you've got the the decision to to give Son Heung-min offside um, when Tottenham were one 0 up um, in that game. Uh, the goal goes in, almost certainly Tottenham win that match. Um, the, the the line from the Premier League is that Son was two centimetres offside according to their technology. Um, we discussed this earlier. It's now earlier in the season that the technology just isn't capable of making discriminations with that degree of accuracy. Um, there are things that I think a lot of... Um, observers are still unaware of, which is that um, there are at least two subjective decisions being made by a, not by an assistant referee, but by a video operator in the studio at Stockley Park on all of these offside decisions. One is when the ball has been passed. So when do you freeze frame to create the offside line? And the other is where does the, the attacking player's body end? So in this case, where was Son's shoulder end? Um, and that's done by uh, moving a mouse and, and uh, drawing a line off where that operator um, subjectively decides from the image, the shoulder is ended. You can't actually see the shoulder, obviously, because it's, um, it's covered by a shirt. You also have a line drawn um, where the defender's body ends, which can also be a shoulder decision or, or a foot. Um, it's easier when it's a foot, it's more marked against the pitch, easier to draw the line. But because, of the, because you're dependent on a technology where um, there are only 50 frames per second, you can't, it's almost impossible to get the exact moment when the ball is passed. And um, a guy called Adam Shafik, um, recent uh, graduate from Cambridge, has done a you know, very nice analysis of the issues in terms of margin of error that introduces because you don't know exactly when the ball is passed. And he's, he's demonstrated that you can have, depending on the speed and the direction in which the defender and the attacker are running in, um, you can have as much as 30 centimetres margin of error in these offside calls because you don't know exactly when the ball is passed. And, and when you freeze frame makes a difference to that image you get, which supposedly categorically demonstrates offside. He made a calculation for Son's one at the weekend, which as I say, the Premier League said was two centimetres off. He believes there was a six centimetre margin of error in that particular call. In other words, there's a one-third chance that the VAR got it right by saying it was offside and a two-third chance they got it wrong. You can't categorically tell from the technology that stands. And the real problem I have with this is you've got guy like Dermot Gallagher, a representative of PGMOL, who um, is the the, uh, the expert referee pundit, if you like, for the Premier League, Premier League television that's broadcast around the world. And he's still insisting that VAR offside decisions are accurate, absolutely precise. He said, after the, the Son decision, he said, we're talking about millimetres and we're talking accuracy. The one thing we said before the start of the season when VAR was launched, offside will be offside, there's no in-betweens. You see it's very, very tight, there's no doubt about that. They've taken their time, they've looked at it, and he's just marginally offside, so therefore offside is given. Um, when you look at the lines like that, it's done absolutely precisely. It's the same for every team, it's the same for every occasion, and offside. This just isn't true. It's not millimetre accurate. And... Dermot Gallagher is doing Premier League a disservice by going on the media and telling fans around the world that VR is giving a categorical decision here and that image that's shown on the screen is, a, is an obvious proof that a player is offside or not. Um, just to, 
to, to demonstrate this isn't just my opinion. It's not the opinion of, of a guy who's gone and looked at the technology and done um, the, these analysis about um, what it is able to discriminate. You have Roberto Rossetti, um, the chief uh, of UEFA's referees, um, last week was asked about this problem with the technology and the problem with making offside decisions. And he said, we're using the current best technology. Of course, it is improving and probably soon we will have something more accurate, more precise. This is something the companies are working on. In three to five years, it will be different. My wish for the future is to have something like automatic offsides, something that can be 100% accurate like gold line technology. So there you have Chief Referee of UEFA saying the current technology is not 100% accurate. Yet, the guy who's representing the Premier League is repeatedly claiming that it is millimetre um, perfect, it's accurate, that the, everything, the image they show definitively demonstrates whether a player's offside or not. And that's a huge, huge problem for the game. Um, and just adds to to the you know the many issues people have with VAR, the controversy around it, and the questions over um, whether it should be implemented at this stage if they don't have that kind of automatic offside system that Rossetti um, believes will be developed, but isn't in place yet. And perhaps one of the issues which isn't discussed so much, Duncan, is that um, VAR is being promoted as being the objective and therefore um, infallible source upon which decisions are made. And yet, the people in charge of actually producing the images, which the VAR referees, obviously, decide upon uh, decisions, are technical or computer technicians who produce that particular image which is then analysed by the referees and upon which decisions are made. Now, they're not qualified referees. They're not qualified in any way to make decisions about football matches. And yet they have the control to move that line. We've all seen them, the red and blue lines, one centimetre, five centimetres, whatever it is, left or right, which changes the perception of the actual decision itself. Clearly, that to me is something which I'd be worried about, not just because of the lack of qualification that person has to make uh, that call, but also potentially because of the, the way that that could be infiltrated by other sources, including, of course, the gambling industry. We're not saying here that anyone is doing anything wrong. We're not even alleging that someone's done something wrong. However... As we've seen in cricket in the past, um, the influence of uh, gambling syndicates can be used to infiltrate sports and indeed um, the people who uh, come up with the technology and the decisions which are then deciding matches. Duncan, that to me is a very, very serious issue which has to be addressed. Yeah, it's one of these unexpected ramifications of VR that just keeps coming up as we use put the system in practice and see how it works. You know, we, we've talked on this podcast about how um, in Italy they have an issue with the referees refusing to listen to the VAR because the VAR is a competitor referee and they, they feel that the competitor referee is trying to embarrass them um, by giving uh, pointing out that the decision is wrong. So, so some of the Italian referees last season were refusing to go to the monitor and check their calls and insist that they, they were correct. So you've got that human competition element, which I don't think we've seen in England yet. And maybe we won't see it in England because, of, because the referees operate in a different way. But it, it's possible we will see that. But you're right. Well, Duncan, how, how many times has a referee in a Premier League game gone to the monitor to actually analyse what VR has told him. I, I think we've seen that there's very, very few occasions when that's happened, maybe only one, I think, that, they, in my memory. They haven't, and that's because they've been instructed to avoid doing so at all costs to try and um, remove the, uh, the delays. Of doubt. That, yeah. yeah. To remove the delays, because it, it, obviously when you go to the monitor, it takes takes time and, the, and the, the referee's under pressure to make a decision with the entire crowd watching as he as he watches the screen um just on that monitor point there's some another thing about VR which I, which occurred to me the other day is um what happens if you have a referee who needs glasses 
um, when he's doing uh, uh, screen work. So he doesn't have a long-distance sight problem, but he has a, a problem where he needs uh, to wear um, reading, effectively reading glasses to, to look at a screen. Do they get to put their, their glasses by the monitors? And well, you that? assume so. You have to oh, assume so. I haven't actually seen the referee using those glasses in, in those instances. No. So a little minor point. A little minor point. No, it's true, Duncan, but you'd like to think they'd be beside the monitor for them to facilitate if need be. But if you look at MLS, where VR's been used for longer than it has anywhere else, the referees almost regularly check decisions on the monitor before they make a decision. Yes, it, it does incur a delay, but at the same time, if it's getting the decision right, surely the delay is, you know, immaterial. I, I, I don't like the monitor decisions. I don't like the delay involved. I don't like the idea that a referee is under pressure in a stadium while making his decision. Um, so, you know, the home, if the goal is get, gone against the home fans, there'll be pressure, that, that pressure to to um, to decide that it, it wasn't a goal or to give a penalty for them. I think there's there's lots of lots of problems with that system. Um, you, we saw in the World Cup final, an absolutely 50-50 um, handball decision that uh, you know, really, I think, if you, if you went through a poll of referees, you would get that split. It would be 50-50. Was that handball or not? Was it intentional handball or not? The referee didn't give it first time around. He's put in front of a screen with his colleagues telling him, uh, we think that was a handball, have another look at it, and he changes his mind. And the, the World Cup final was decided on that. So you've got that psychological element involved there um, the, the point you make though is, is fundamental that the, the video operator has from those two subjective decisions on where the defensive line and the, the uh, attacking offside line, the end of the, the uh, attacker's body is drawn he and um, when the ball was passed he creates an image and that's what he's doing he's creating an image from which offside is decided or not and as you say, if you were in charge of an Asian gambling syndicate, who we know have tried to, uh, and uh, who football authorities go to a great length in trying to stop gambling syndicates around the world, affecting um, the outcomes of games, of, uh, the, um, the, of buying referees and buying decisions and matches. If you were in one of those gambling syndicates, you would surely be noting that you now have a um, a person who nobody sees because he's not in the stadium um, with control of a mouse who can create an image which decides whether a goal was scored or not. Um, that surely has to be quite a valuable asset to that kind of person. Is VAR Mickey Mouse? That's the headline uh, on this particular segment, I think. Um, it's a good point, though. Very good point, Duncan. And um, I do believe that this, you know, will end up at some point, we'll end up in court because a VAR decision has cost a team the Champions League final or uh, a league title or the World Cup or whatever. And it, this will be contested because we know it's not perfect. We know that it's fallible, et cetera, et cetera. And therefore, a precedent will then be set unless the technology is improved or the rules are changed. And until that comes, then I think everything is up for debate. That's certainly the case. We move on to uh, our Monday uh, conclusion, which, of course, is heroes and villains of the last few days in football. Um, and, of course, in keeping on topic, I'm going to give Duncan the villain uh, of the piece uh, for this particular Monday uh, in terms of who has been or what has been the uh, most outrageous uh, scandal of the last few days, Duncan, and has caught your attention and your ire? <laughs> um, well, I don't know if it's the most outrageous scandal, but I'm going to stick with someone I just mentioned as the villain of the week, and that's Dermot Gallagher, um, because as I say, um, he has had ample opportunity to research the accuracy of VAR. He is in a position of great influence, um, uh, basically assessing referees' decisions for the Premier League TV channel and uh, and, dis and 
making a stance on whether they were correct or not, explaining those decisions. And he's consistently con and continuing to put out misinformation about VAR offside decisions that the system is accurate and can make such tight discriminations. As someone pointed out to me that the son being offside by two centimetres on his shoulder is the equivalent of, of trying to judge um, whether his shoulder, which you can't see from the image, and you're making a decision from that image, is offside by less than the diameter of a 10 pence coin. It's, it's absurd when you think about it, particularly with those subjective elements, but what really annoys me is when someone in a position of responsibility like that persistently um, puts out misinformation and misleads the fans about um, the effectiveness of, a, of a, what is a controversial system. And also there's an irony there, Duncan, in that um, a 10 pence coin used to be uh, the uh, chosen coin for referees in deciding kickoff or not. Um, and of course, it's too small now to be seen properly. So if that's the uh, mark of the um, measurement of accuracy on offsides, then the referee, if he can't even see it when he's doing the toss, then who can see it when they're deciding on offside? I thought you were going to say that a 10p coin used to be the chosen coin for throwing at referees there for a minute. No, that was, as Jamie Carricker knows, pound coins are, are definitely the ones for that. And of, <laughs> and of course, we didn't say at the time, but Jamie Carricker was the only person defending Manchester United um, after the debacle at West Ham um, in a studio full of people like Graham Sinis, Roy Keane and Josie Mourinho. Uh, when you've got uh, a fool like Jamie Carragher, as he has been of Manchester all these years, being your defence, then you probably do have things to worry about. Um, Oli, just saying. Um, I'm going to go for my hero of the last few days, one of my favourite players, and I'm pleased to be able to nominate him as well, which is Bernardo Silva, um, a man who I think you know, deserves much more credit than he gets. He's one of those... Um, <laughs> reliably underrated players um, when it comes to the um, star-studded element of Manchester City when um, accepting the ball for his hat-trick against Watford um, he very modestly said this is the only time anyone's ever given me the ball because I've never scored a hat-trick in my career it's very unusual I'm not sure where I'm going to put it but I guarantee you that it will be somewhere where people can see it. So I love Bernardo Silva for that and for the way that he plays his football um, and as well his personality. That was fantastic. Well done, Bernardo. If you want to continue the debate with us and we love to do that with you, then please engage us on our Twitter accounts at Transfer Podcast, as you know, at Duncan Castles, at Garbo SJ for me. Uh, we will... Um, continue obviously to um, keep up the conversation but also we invite your questions for Wednesday's podcast which of course is when you get to ask us what we think and we answer you directly. Lots of you have been in touch over the past few weeks we want to continue that and expand that and uh, in doing so we urge you to give something back go on to the iTunes um, uh, platform give us a five-star review that means we reach more people, as you know, and then we can all get together and have another chat as well about the things you want to talk about on the Transfer Window podcast. For now, uh, it's just for me, left for me to say thank you to Duncan for another excellent uh, uh, 45 minutes or so, and we will see you through the Transfer Window on Wednesday. Thank you for listening. Thank you.